Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Your adventure is your adventure. It's no one else's adventure. Don't ever compare yourself. Comparison in, in our sports is the thief of joy. Just do it for you. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this episode with Hugo Tagholm. Hugo is a conservationist and environmental campaigner. He's executive director and vice president of Oceana in the UK. He previously led the ocean campaigning charity Surfers Against Sewage, for which he's arguably best known. I absolutely adored this conversation. It's one of my favourites that I've had in a long time. Hugo is passionate, knowledgeable, eloquent and committed In this episode, we talk about Hugo's personal story, from growing up in London to falling in love with surfing and ultimately becoming a campaigner. But this conversation is also a cerebral and challenging one. We explore the issues that face our oceans and what we can do to turn the tide and help to protect them in the face of severe crisis. I left this conversation having learnt a massive amount and feeling hugely inspired, even if just because it's incredibly reassuring to know there are people like Hugo out there. Before we begin, I'd like to mention that we're on Patreon. So if you're a regular listener to the podcast and would like to access extra content, including InVision interviews and monthly sit-downs with me and a guest, then you can find us on Patreon at The Adventure Podcast. I'd also like to talk to you about Sidetrack magazine, our sister publication. Sidetrack is an incredible quarterly journal that celebrates authentic stories of adventure and exploration. You can find out more at sidetracked.com. I'd also like to take a quick moment to push you in the direction of our charitable partner, the Martin Moran Foundation. They're a wonderful organisation working to get young people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the outdoors. You can find information about how you can support them on our Instagram bio at The Adventure Podcast. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review. They're a big help and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. Okay, over to Hugo Tagholm. Let's start in the logical place. Um, thanks very much for doing this. So can you please just introduce yourself? Tell me who you are and what you do, whatever that means to you. Yeah, I'm Hugo Tagheim, um, and I am a, a really a, an activist, uh, an ocean activist to be more specific. Um, I um, currently lead um, Oceana um, in the UK, um, Oceana is one of the world's biggest advocacy and campaigning um, groups that focus specifically on ocean issues. Um, and prior to that, I led and built um, a team at Surfers Against Sewage, um, working on um, a lot of grassroots campaigns, building up a, a group of amazing, you know, um, people um, at my office in Cornwall, and then building an incredible network of um, passionate ocean activists around the country, people leading 
issues and, and campaigns in their own area, which I think is a big part of successful activism. Um, so um, it's been great to go from the sort of quite local um, sort of um, and sort of regional charity in some ways that we grew into a, a big force to one of the sort of world's sort of bigger international charities working on some of the, the really big ocean issues at the time. So that's that's me sort of professionally. Before that, I worked in um, in other charities at the Stop Climate Chaos Coalition. I worked with Gordon Brown's wife for a long time, Sarah Brown, um, leading her children's charity um, where I was program director. Um, and before that, I was in PR companies and uh, and um, you know did comms. Um, so I've always done sort of sort of influence campaigning is always about influencing people. It's about changing hearts and minds, winning hearts and minds. Um, whether it's PR, um, winning funding to support services or campaign, running campaigns, talking to the media. It's all about communications, knowing who you're talking to, knowing how you're talking to them, knowing the journey you want to sort of involve them with, knowing what you want to learn from them. So all of those sort of good things. Um, you know, personally, I'm a surfer. I'm a, a very average surfer. I love I love surfing. I love riding waves. Um, I love riding them on my shortboard, on my longboard, on my foamy, on my hand plane. I love riding my bodyboard with my son all different crafts for different waves, um, no judgment with any type of craft in the water. You know, I think it's a bit like a, a set of golf clubs. You know, you have your, well, actually, I don't know anything about golf clubs, but I'm going to say what I think. <laughs> You've got your putter and your nine iron, and they do different things in different parts of the course. You need the same with surfing, you know. not You know, there's not, not, a, not, not one type of wave and one type of board. There's all sorts. So it's sort of cool to have that diversity. And I love seeing the lineup filling up with different people and different boards now. It's great to see. Um, I love nature. That's where it all started for me. That's where my adventure started, you know, in the pond in my garden in North London, you know, going down to like, collect stuff from rock pools, um, having a room full of stuff I'd collected in nature, Um you know, traveling with my parents and my brothers to see other places, France, Italy, you know, collecting animals I couldn't get at home, looking at them, you know, drawing them, all of that stuff. Um, and I'm, I'm very, very happily working out of Cornwall where I live. I'm a Londoner born and bred, an Arsenal fan. Um, I'll always be a Londoner, but I, I will now always live in Cornwall, I think. Um, it's it's a place I've, we've, we've raised our son, Darwin, um, it's actually my 13th wedding anniversary today. Um, <laughs> and um, our son is a great bodyboarder. He loves getting in the sea, challenges me now. He's braver than me. And that's awesome. Good to keep um, to keep my, you know, my um, my sort of my um, my ambition around it sort of high. Although I sort of say that and sorry, stop me if I'm rambling. Um I said I've got this sort of view on sort of surfing because everyone sort of thinks of it. And people, certainly when I worked at Surfing Against Sewage, were always like sort of expecting that I'm going to be like a big wave surfer and like this sort of ripper who's going to like be, you know, be this sort of classic sort of testosterone-fueled, slightly sort of macho sort of person. And I'm like, not not A, not at all, but B, like everyone's like, everyone's adventure and everyone's size of wave or size of mountain or whatever, whatever the threshold of their like adrenaline trigger, their, their excitement trigger is different. You know, mine is at a certain size of wave, which most people in the sort of 
proper surfing world might think is quite small. Others people, other you know, friends of mine, people like Greg Long, the big wave surfers, you know, it's, it's surf waves that I would never even dream of, you know, going near the shoreline on. And it's like everyone has just a different, different trigger for the adrenaline they need. But it's the same. It's the same adrenaline you get at the end of the day. So, like the the, the size of the wave may be different, but you're still getting the same thing. So, um, people should never worry about what somebody else surfs. It's all an internal thing. That your adventure is your adventure. It's no one else's adventure. That's something I've always thoroughly, thoroughly believed. Don't ever compare yourself. Comparison in in our sports is the thief of joy. And I'm not the first person to say that, but it absolutely is. Just do it for you. You know, what is your adventure? What is your fast? What is your big? What is your high? What is your scary? It's only for you. Shortest podcast ever. There we go. That'll do. (laughs) Amazing. I mean, you've just, as I said to you, I've got no notes, but you just answered about eight of my questions um, perfectly. Um, And that kind of, intro is peppered with a few things I definitely, definitely want to touch on in more detail. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, you hinted at it, but where does this begin with you? You know, I think advocacy, unless you're one of those rare creatures, very rare creatures, um, begins with passion. You know, where did yours come yeah. from and what was it that made you fall in love with the natural world? And water. Yeah, look, like um, I, I, I grew up in leafy Muswell Hill in North London. We had an amazing bit of wild land at the bottom of our garden. We, it wasn't our land. We had a, a nice garden. We had a nice house. I was, you know, I had a, a good upbringing. Um, and I had a pond at the end of the garden that I, I've always sort of dug and looked after. And beyond the end of the garden was a bit of wild land, a scrubland. I think it's all built on now, houses now. Um, and it had, a, it had an amazing wild natural pond with newts and frogs I remember summer's days being sort of like knee deep, waist deep in it, you know, you know, fishing for frogs and, and, and newts. The land had foxes on it. It had bats flying around it. It was like a really, like it was an amazing oasis um, that always excited me. See the different animals, hedgehogs, um, you know, all sorts. Um, and I was an avid collector. I was sort of like this natural history artifact hoarder when I was young. I had a room full of... Um, broken birds' eggs and rocks and shells and things I collected. I labelled them all up, English names, common names and Latin names, had shells and shells, rocks, all sorts of things. I found birds' nests. Um, I think I had a dead bat at one stage, which probably was not not amazing to have in my room, but I had it. Um, and, you know, the, the sea was particularly particularly fascinating for me um, and I'd seen you know we did a lot of time in Cornwall and southwest France and I was fascinated by by um by faraway places too and this was I'm sort of showing my age but you know I grew up in a time before rampant air travel people didn't travel like they travel today you know I didn't you know as a young boy we didn't get on planes every not not every holiday not any holidays not every weekend you know very rarely but i remember our neighbors we had these really nice neighbors who had a holiday or they they had links in in st kitts um and they'd come back with bits of little bits of corals and stories of what they'd seen and books about about these far off places that always always fascinated me and then of course you know my my i suppose i've i've grown up in my life as a you know through the time of, of you can access more and more sort of places around the world so I, I started as a as an avid sort of naturalist i 
you know, I, I was passionate about that. Um, and then I became fascinated in sports as I became a teenager. I was a runner first. I ran for my county, for Haringey. I ran for my school, Fortismith School. Um, I was a footballer. Um, I swam. And then I found surfing as a very young teenager, and I and I was hooked. And it was this thing that combined the two. It took me to the places I loved. So from a sort of a wild coastline, see nature, you'd see birds and animals, but you'd also do this sport thing. And I became hooked on the endorphins and the the the, 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 the feeling that that sport would would give me, um, and something I need to this day. And we. And touched on that earlier, you know, I need it, you know, it, you know, I think it's the best, best drug in the world. You know, it's amazing to, to, to regulate yourself. You can change your whole outlook by doing sport. You know, what you think is an outside stress, what you think is something that is, is, is pressuring you is actually something from the inside trying to burst out and you can actually regulate that. You can, you can make yourself feel totally different with sport. And so whether it's running, surfing, swimming a couple of miles in the sea, all of those things are amazing. So surfing brought, brought that to me in a big way after running. And, and then, you know, the sort of the, the, the pretty potent combination of nature, a great sport that I loved, and this sort of the difficulty of it, because it is a difficult sport. Um, and then the sort of, I suppose, the sort of the culture around it, the music, the art, the other things that that created this irresistible tapestry of things. And and I ended up as a, a, a sort of, you know, 15-year-old in southwest France making friends with a lot of incredible local people, fell in love with the culture there and spent a lot of time in southwest France where I deepened my relationship with both the ocean and and nature. Um, and surfing, but then also with with people there. So that then took me on, you know, trips with surfing friends to Indonesia and to Australia and various places. Which, which uh, it's never never died in me. It's never died in me. The, the the twin love of 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 the coastline for nature and now the coastline for um for for surfing. And I've, I've got a, our son's fifteen, just turned fifteen. He's He's starting his journey, sort of thing, and well, he's a much better surfer than I am. Um, but he's called Darwin, and um, and so I see it through the prism of his life now too, um, as I as I um, get get older. But yeah, like what an amazing privilege, and and um, sort of where it is, you know, that's you know broadly where it started, and I've sort of always been a people person, which which took me into sort of you know sharing really sharing my own energy and love and and things with people and and finding myself you know working with amazing people who inspired me having opportunities to to influence change work on big things um you know and 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 build build teams around me so it's been a it's been a, a privilege and a, a brilliant ride since that that first sort of pond at the bottom of my garden and you know it occurs to me that there must have been, whether it was a trigger point or whether it was something rolling slowly, activism, I mean, you're a much better place to, to comment on this than me, but it stems from a place of accepting that something is wrong or broken, I guess. Yeah. Where does that come yeah. from for you? Or do you disagree? Well, for me, like I grew, grew up in, you know, I mean, I was talking to my brother, actually. I've got an older brother, Tom, and a younger brother, Theo. 
Activism for me was probably really instilled where I grew up in Muswell Hill. It was quite a, an activist sort of community, you know, the campaign for nuclear disarmament, um, you know, the the um, the sort of emerging sort of organic sort of trends in food, you know, which would have been nascent there. The sort of even the sort of refill stuff. I remember going to like a, a, a refill shop called Bumblebee down in Kentish Town with my my mum. You know, and this was way before the plastic pollution crisis gripped the nation, and everyone wanted to do that stuff. And there was a lot of you know good you know good things you know you know um, you know inclusivity um, you know anti racism you know all of these things sort of I grew up around that was the the culture I grew up you know it was a very diverse school I was in you know that you know those those things were were sort of embedded into you know thinking and it was sort of activistic you know it felt you know it felt like people around us wanted to see societal change they wanted to see environmental change they wanted to fight injustice and wrongdoing so i think i heard it around you know dare i say dinner party tables and and walks around you know alexandra palace amongst my you know parents friends and and peers and you know i saw it live and direct i saw the banners i saw the demonstrations i saw the the people and it it, it seeped into me um and I think you know I've taken that that forward, um, and I, I believe in 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 activism, and I believe in in activism in, in in all its ways. And it's not just about waving banners and and trying to trying to shout you know shout people down. You know, it's much more nuanced than that. And it, you know, activism happens in every space in every day that you're working. You know, um, everyone's everyone's always you know trying to sell their ideas in a way, and um, activism is that. So so yeah, I grew up around it. That's fascinating. And so what leads you, you know, you said that you worked in PR, et cetera, and you worked with Sarah Brown. What led you towards Surfers Against Sewage and how did that all come about? I loved it. Like I was a surfer, you know, I'm you know, still I'm a bad surfer really in the big scheme of things, definitely. But um, what, what, look, I'll, t- I'll tell you, there's, I mean, there's a few things that happen. You know, I was, uh, A, you know, wave riding is one of the sort of biggest joys of my life. I mean, there's nothing really like being in a, in a tube, you know, it's a, a sort of otherworldly sort of experience that many people have tried to articulate on paper and in films and always pretty much failed. Not, not absolutely failed. There's a few good examples of books and literature that, 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 that have written it well. Um, you know, in 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 certain in certain ways, um, one of my favourite authors, Tim Winton, an Australian author, incredible writer. You know, he describes it in a in a powerful way. Um, a guy, a Welsh writer called Russell Kellen Jones, wrote some of the best sort of bits of writing I'd seen about about uh, surfing and the experience of it and what it brought to to him in a in a in a piece of fiction he actually wrote for me, but. But I was fascinated sort of by it. And I was always a member, I was a member of for SAS for a long time and had been involved since back in 1991 when I was 16. Um, Surf Against Sewage is a year old. I, I had been in France over the summer, I think. And um, and I came back thinking I was a pretty good, I was a bodyboarder at the time. It was a boom in bodyboarding, thinking I, I should do a competition. And, and SAS were doing a competition in September. Can't remember the exact date when I came back, and it was called Surf to Save. It was an environmental competition that Greenpeace were involved with, Friends of the Earth, the nascent SAS that had been first founded in 1990. And I went along, and 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 it was at Paul Zeth. I met some of the founders. I 
turned up with my dad. He dropped me off, and I remember these marching lines. It was perfect and offshore. It was fairly. It was. It was seemed big for me at the time. I don't think it was that big. And I got through my round, and I was really, really happy. I was like, "It's great!" It was straight from the quarterfinal. I think from the quarterfinals into the semifinals, which sort of makes you know, when you say you're in the semifinals, it makes it sound good. But it was only one round. But and then the next day, my dad left me there, and I was in a B and B up at the top of Paul's Zeth, and and um and he went back, drove home. He had to go to work, and I got the train back the next day. I got knocked out of my heat the next day. It was all stormy. It was massive and stormy and horrible. But this where there that I first sort of met the. the you know, some of the founders of SAS and that was sort of good. And and then through my university, you know, time, I went to Exeter University. Um, you know, everyone, you know, we all had sort of SAS hoodies and, and stuff like that. And it was quite a, a brand, really, that, that people liked and the activism. And then I took over in 2008. I sort of saved it. It was it was going to be sort of wound up and it was in, a, in sort of bad health. And I just thought we could we could do we could go again with this. I had three people next to no money and not not a big sort of vision forward. And and we we set that to right. So we you know grew it from three to sort of thirty people, from hundred and fifty grand to two point two million, from a from a you know really nice niche charity that that people loved into like a global voice, really a national voice and a global voice on water quality and plastic. So it was sort of amazing to, to do that. Um, and I met many brilliant people through it. You know, I got to meet and work with some of the best scientists in the world, best ocean activists in the world. Um, um, I got to speak in Downing Street, in, in Parliament, at the UN. I got to, you know, rub shoulders with David Attenborough multiple times and, you know, all sorts of icons um, of the sport as well, you know, world champion surfers um, and stuff. So it was really good. And I felt it came from from passion and, and authenticity because it truly manifested all of the things that I was and still am. Um, and I felt that it was a charity that need you know always we would always need that you know um, and I'm I'm now proud to take that experience on to an and sort of an even bigger opportunity with Oceana. And humour me, I know you've you know commented on this thousands of times over the course of your career, but what is was is the issue? You know what's the problem that the coastline yeah. faces? Well, look, I think what is the problem like nature faces, you know, it's like we're squeezing nature out of the, the planet. You know, that is what we're doing. You know, we're, 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 we're systematically annihilating species on a global scale. Um, you know, the world has never seen anything like it before. We're consuming our way through natural resources um, and the ocean is now at the epicenter of that in a way you know we've harvested all of the land you know you know certainly in the uk you know we're one of the most nature depleted countries in the world you know there's very little wild nature left but our oceans are in 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 they're not in good shape but there's more hope and the the ocean can bounce but whether it's plastic pollution sewage pollution whether it's the impacts of carbon dioxide on the ocean whether it's overfishing and the big industrial sort of you know, you know, impact that that has on on the sea. You know, all of these things. You know, we've got this squeeze. In the squeezes, you know, we're pumping in all of this pollution, and and changing the literally the chemistry of our ocean. 
and we're taking out all of the good stuff. You know, we're taking out life as we know it um, in in such a fast way that that it hasn't got time to respond. Um, you know, with fish, you know, fishing trawlers sailing through our marine protected areas. We've got. Um, oil and gas developments, you know, within M- marine protected areas, we've got, you know, plastic pollution um, entering the ocean in the millions of tons every year, and all of this stuff has to be stopped because we all depend on a healthy ocean. Our oxygen comes from it. Um, of course, a lot of well-being comes from it in terms of sports like surfing. A lot of uh, nutrition comes from it around the world. I mean, you and I, we don't have to eat fish. And if we do eat fish, we should choose you know, the most sustainably, most locally caught, lowest impact fish that we can, we can find. But there are people around the world that rely on it every day. I mean, I, I don't eat very much fish. I eat a little bit, but I'm a, a vegetarian, and we can make those choices here. But around the world, people depend on it day to day, and so like we're we're really we're putting this this squeeze on on the ocean now that is is in in intolerable really. So it's taking groups, um, very local groups like SAS that are you know based on activism at the beachfront through to big advocacy groups like Oceana and, and um, you know, Greenpeace and others who can influence the High Seas Treaty or the way we're running marine protected areas and um, the way we challenge industrial fishing and all of those things that we need to really solve at a policy change level. Now, we need governments to intervene because, because you know, you, you this is a big challenge, and I'll give you an example of why I say that, because I've done a lot of work around plastics, and I love it. I love how it's brought people together, and it's amazing, you know, because people can visualize it. It's a very tangible thing. You know, they they can they can be involved straight away, and everyone in 2017 became like a plastics expert. It was like you only had to say, like, plastic is bad, and, and you could, you know, you could launch a new organization, and you could... You, get involved in the campaigning space but the big challenge we have in this sort of era that we're in with big businesses and how business is structured is they want they want everyone to focus on the individual responsibility they want everyone to be arguing about refill of coffee cups and water bottles they want everyone to talk about you know little local projects whilst big business gets on with with destroying the world as sort of fast as it can to make their profits and where i'm at now i think is what we've really got to do is challenge those big businesses to save the ocean. Like they want us all to be tinkering around the edges day to day with interesting sort of bespoke sort of community projects. And some of those are great to bring people together. But, you know, let's be very careful not to let that distract from what really needs to happen. We need to end, you know, fossil fuel extraction and use. You know, we need to massively boost our renewable energy um, uh, infrastructure in the UK. We need to end the most harmful fishing subsidies and types of fishing, bottom trawling in marine protected areas. We need to stop the manufacture of lots of plastics and stop the insidious creep of the oil industry that's got its tendrils into, you know, as they get pushed out of fuel for our vehicles, they get pushed into making more and more pointless plastics. You know, we need to, you know, we need to, to really take big decisions um, and stop me if I'm rambling, but I'm going to give you a, 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 the, the, the sort of the, the, the sort of the nexus really of the, the frustration is is so often we're told as environmentalists that you know we can't make a decision because the public are going to be unhappy because we couldn't take away this 
bit of their life or that bit of their life. They say, look, we can't pass laws quickly. It's going to take years. We've got to do some more consultations on it because what, you know, what, what's business going to think if we don't ask them enough, you know? You know, we can't we can't find the money to support this. It's too much. But all of that was disproved during the pandemic. They changed laws overnight to restrict how we did things in the face of danger. They mobilized records amount of money to 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 roll out vaccines and support different parts of it. They um they created a vaccine within a number of months that they rolled out successfully that that stemmed the tide. And they changed things that we never would have dreamt that we would have accepted. They said to you and I, we can't see our friends and family anymore. We can't go to the pub. We can't go to work. We can't do anything. And we all said, yep, we get it. There's a big danger. We get it. And so they can do these really radical things pretty quickly, but they're just failing to do it at the scale we need for, for nature. And it's not to say that we're all going to get restricted if if you know in the same way as the pandemic, but the government has to accept that some businesses need to go out of business for a sustainable planet. We're not in a negotiation about keeping everyone in business. And my example would be maybe a, a rather silly one, but but I'm sure that when the international whaling moratorium came in, the whaling industry was devastated. So look, you're going to put a load of people out of jobs. And it's like, yeah, we are because we can't kill whales anymore. And so we're going to have to help you find other jobs because this can't happen anymore and there's plenty of things on this planet at the moment that shouldn't happen anymore we've probably got oil and gas extraction at the top of it and we're fighting that in the north sea with oceana and and the uplift movement but um but we need to get real about the fact that some businesses in a world that is wholly unsustainable need to go out of business and we need to say it loud and clear that's fine some businesses need to be be put out of business and we need to help the people who work in those businesses find new jobs. It shouldn't be a question of no job or you do a job that destroys the planet. It should be a question of you do a job that destroys the planet or you decide and get given the opportunity to do the job that helps save the planet. And I think most people would decide the latter. Yeah, and I was going to say to you like, oh, let's not get political, but that's just, we are going to get political and that's a good thing. Yeah. And yeah. You know, when when Boris sat in front of the flag and said, no more going outside, you need to stay at home, please. Yeah. Regardless of my politics, which you could probably take a pretty good guess at. Yeah. I thought, okay, I'm with you, let's do this. What is stopping us doing that when it comes to climate crisis, ocean devastation, the fact that we're one of the most degraded, I think we're 189th, are we, globally? You know, we're one of the most degraded nations on the planet. Is it that the, the is it that we the public don't see it as a crisis, or is it that the government don't care because they're short term thinkers and everything's about the next election? I'm not sure it's you know we we I'm not sure it's ever black and white. Um, you know we live in a, a world that's grey, not not black and white, and and that's the challenge. And, and part of that is exacerbated by the fact that social media wants everything to be black and white, and you know even campaigners often want things to be black and white, and it's not black and white um you know like you know where are we you know you know where are we with it all you know i certainly think that the big business um is is too involved in influencing politics and has too much skin in the game and there's too much of a revolving door between business and government and government and regulators and and nepotism within it i think the, the 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 technical term i think for all of that is regulatory capture 
um, and and it, it exists in abundance. Um, you know, whether it's the water industry or whether it's oil and gas, you know, the the um, the issue is real. Um, and so, you know, these big industries and you know by by influence by people often. And we know this happens. We know the playbook, and we've seen it before. We've seen it with with tobacco. You know, tobacco. You know, the the you know brought the opinion of doctors to say smoking was good for you, and they smoked, and you know that 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 hid evidence and and stopped the public from knowing the the, the not just the, the minor health impacts, but the dramatic health impacts and life-shortening effects of smoking cigarettes. So we know how they do it, and we know how they get blinkered, and we know how they they brainwash their own staff into thinking it's fine and 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 rule through the the channels that the world has, and that's largely advertising. You know, they can advertise a, a you know a, a, you know a you know, and buy people out of, of the space. And they said they dominate these market spaces, whether it's in newspapers, magazines, you know, whether it's, you know, in more sort of subtle forms of advertising these days, you know, social media or whatever, you know, they can do it. We, we, we've seen it again on these sort of elections, you know, and the disruption in elections and how algorithms and how advertising and influence, you know, change the course of politics you know, made people do things that, you know, that they wouldn't do and everyone's in their own echo chamber and they believe that, you know, that, that, that they sort of know the truth, but they're being manipulated. You know, you're being manipulated every time you look at your social media channels, you're being manipulated. You think you're in control, think you're the center of the universe, but what you're really doing, you know, and I'm a, I use it far too much. You're making Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk a lot of money. That's what you're really doing. You're you're a you're a, a worker within within the system that they control. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And so like all of this stuff, and I'm digressing slightly, but my point is, is big business has an insidious effect on politics and on our democracy at the moment and on decisions that are being made. And, you know, they, they will fight tooth and nail. And we've seen it with the plastics industry. We've seen it with the oil industry. We've seen it with the tobacco industry. They will fight tooth and nail to stop change from happening. They don't want change. They want to make money in the easiest way. You know, these, these oil companies that say they're investing in renewables are often just investing a tiny fraction in that compared to what they're investing in, in new oil and gas. And so, you know, they're, they're, they're spinning, spinning the public a, a different message to the reality that's happening. And that that's really dangerous. And you're right. And just to sort of, because we were talking politics, you know, the, 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 the election cycle doesn't help. It's short-termism. You know, people want to maintain the status quo. Um, you know, the 
you know, the, of course, the you know other issues, you know, people's day to day lives will, will will trump some of the things that might happen in five, ten, fifteen, twenty, fifty years. You know, for the politicians that say they're going to go, what's you know what's going to win them their seat, keep them their seat. So I think there's a you know a challenge in the political system, and you know I think maybe in the UK we we need some reform around that. We've seen a a lot of a lot of years of of of, of negativity, um, and whatever your political colours, and I could guess yours, and you could probably guess mine, but whatever political colours you have, you know they're 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 you know they, it is also not black and white, and there's potentially good people fighting for your issues in all sort of corners, the political, you know, sort of divide. And so, you know, as a campaigner, you also got to sort of recognise that. I mean, and as a charity, you know, you want to be, you know, you're apolitical. You've got to make friends everywhere. And, you you know, you've got to fight for your beneficiary ultimately and the policy change that anyone would sort of adopt. Um, and certainly in the ocean space, I see see progressive thinking in 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 all in all of the the parties. I mean, there are some parties with more of it and some parties with less of it. But you want to try and build like a, a, an unstoppable consensus that whatever happens with the party you may vote for personally, that ultimately you change the narrative so whoever comes into power, whenever they come into power, will carry on the good work to protect and restore the ocean and and our wild world at, at large. That should be it. Because if not, what will happen is if the party that you like will come in, they'll have a couple of terms, then they'll be kicked out and somebody will undo all of the good work you've done. And we're seeing that in abundance at the moment with what happened with Brexit because we're looking down the barrel of the, the rather um, boringly entitled retained EU law bill, the rule bill, which is this sunset clause, which might get rid of lots of environmental legislation outright at the end of the year. And, you know, that was legislation that we all thought was there in stone forever. We're good. We're, we've, we've got the habitats regulation. We've got the, the bathing water regulation. We've got all of this stuff. But actually, it came under threat because of what happened in a, a binary vote that David Cameron put in place back in, what, 2016? I'm going to say it. It's all right, though, because we've got back control now, you know, so it's all going to be yeah. fine. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. no, I, you know, I, I'm going to derail this ever so slightly, deliberately, because, yeah. because we're going deep. You know, there's an amazing book called The Good Ancestor. I don't know if you've read it by Roman Krisnarik, who's oh, an Australian no. philosopher, lives in London now. But yeah. he um, he did this incredible study on autocracy versus democracy in crisis. And he said that basically yeah. most of the time democracy wins. Like we want democracy long term. Yeah. But in a short term crisis, autocracy won every time. And there, he gives amazing examples about reforestation in Japan and all this all this stuff. But mm-hmm. I just wonder, you know, guessing political colours, etc guessing some of the things you might believe whether or not you feel that you know covid style autocracy and putting you on the spot is the route to fixing a lot of the environmental problems that we face yeah look i think i think we're going to live through some really big shocks in our time i mean i'm a, i'm approaching 50 years old um, and I think in my lifetime, we're going to see some dramatic changes, um, some because we're forced into it. You know, I think things like, and we're already sensing maybe the leading edge of it. Um, I think things like rationing of certain products and goods will will, will happen. 
um, and probably rightfully so, I always think that our travel travel um, habits might also change. You know, we might see a, a new boom in Victoriana because, you know, people coming back to the coastline and reinvestment in our own coastline, you know, coastal communities and other places because, you know, some of the, you know, that 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 travel we do now, which I didn't have when I was young, will come and go. You know, maybe that will happen. You know, and I think some of the big decisions around how we use land, of course, at the moment, governments will, you know, have compulsory purchase orders around road building. We've got the A30 being widened here to the last bit of dual carriageway. We've got motorways being built. We've got the 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 maybe the white elephant of HS2 that has cut a sway through ancient forests and many people have rebelled against this. When are we going to have compulsory purchase orders to replant trees and re rewind rivers and give the space for nature to come back? And that may well happen. You know, why, why, why shouldn't it? If we do it one way, we might do it the other way. And so for me, I, I do see these things. And to the point that we talked about before on 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 COVID, it's like people might just go, oh, yeah, of, of, of course, of course that's fine. And, you know, governments might intervene and say, look, we can't have certain products. Look, I mean, I'll give you, I'll show, show my age again. I've, I've used this a couple of times before, but I do think it's a pertinent one. When I was a kid in lovely Muswell Hill, Smoked salmon was a, a treat at Christmas. It was amazing, you know, and I felt, I truly felt the privilege of having it at Christmas. I felt, I felt lucky. It would almost be a talking point at school. We had smoked salmon at Christmas, you know, smoked salmon started before the turkey. Great. You know, now people are eating smoked salmon every single day in their smoked salmon and cream cheese bagels. You know, it comes off the conveyor belt and, um, and people eat that. You know, the question is, is like, can we really sustain that? We've got salmon farms that are riddled with, with, horma, with hormones and with antibiotics. We've got salmon being reared on wild fish that we're catching. Apparently about seven pounds of wild fish creates one pound of farmed salmon. Now, like, where's the sustainability in this? You know, we're having salmon farms in marine protected areas, you know, that are causing, you know, disease amongst wild fish. And like, is that worth it for the convenience of your everyday bagel that you're having? You know, is this something we can tolerate? You know, it's not that we want to stop people from having, you know, we don't want to make it that just the rich can have things, but we've got to ask ourselves some questions about, about the access to anything. We're in the age of abundance and it can't always be the way we're, we're going to live our lives. It's just not possible. But that's part of shifting baseline syndrome, isn't it? It's like yeah. we we just think it's normal because that's what we grew up with. And I, you know, when I was a kid, smoked salmon and scrambled eggs was a treat. And then yeah. as I got into my middle class, late 20s, it was like, well, I can have that whenever I want. And I did because it was healthy and I was training and it was great. And yeah. then, yeah. you know, rapid anecdote that has a point at the end. I used to love salmon. And then I did a film project in Scotland with a guy called Corin Smith and he's a yeah and he was an amazing guy and i haven't had a mouthful of salmon since and i don't mean to sound holier than thou etc it's more my point is i personally believe that part of it is learning to not want to like the idea of eating salmon it almost disgusts me now because i know what it is where it comes from and the impact it's having so i don't miss it you know yeah it, it, it it just feels like 
we're, I mean, it's part of what you've said, but we're having the wall pulled over our eyes in so many ways and it's awareness and understanding the impact this is having. You know, the first blackberry of the season and eating things like that instead of just buying them in the middle of January. You know, and again, personal opinion, but I happen to find great power and sense of place in noticing the seasons through food and actually how yeah. much joy could we bring to people by changing the way we eat and also benefiting the planet. Um, yeah, look, I think, look, I agree 100%. I, I think that the big trick and question we've got to ask ourselves is what is the model that makes it as inclusive as possible to do that? You know, and mean that we're not leaving people behind, um, meaning that we're not creating a market that just means that the wealthy carry on being able to do what they want whilst whilst others, you know, have a have more sacrifice to make. And I don't, I don't know if I have the the answers to that, but I think this is about how we re you know remodel society. I think there are plenty of things that we need to get rid of, um, you know, on the planet. And look, I also think that that. We've traded abundance. We've traded our time for abundance. And often I think we've traded our happiness for abundance. I, don't, I think the science sort of says that people are, are generally less happy now. They haven't got much time. They're always sort of stressed. There's a lot of mental health issues. They're disconnected from nature. And like, what for? So they can work more to get more stuff they didn't need, you know, that they can build up debt, you know, like where's the new, the, the new thinking? And it's starting to happen. You know, there's lots of trials around four day weeks that are happening, you know, that seem successful. You know, people are starting to realize the, you know, the, the insidious sort of, sort of nature of comparison through social media, you know, people, people need more time more than anything. And they need more time with people that they like and love arguably in spaces that they like and love. They don't need more stuff necessarily. Um, and I think it's, it's um, an int- we're going to live through some really interesting things. And just to, to give another, and I might drift slightly, but, it's a little bit of like the debate around, actually, it's, it's, it's sort of loosely consumerist, it's loosely about sort of time and space. But, you know, there's this big sort of shift towards electric vehicles, which is sort of good, but sort of bad too. You know, like we're trying to replace like independent individual vehicles that were causing a problem with other vehicles. And it doesn't make any sense. It's like just more resources and still more energy. And like, actually, does this really work until we've got proper circularity of materials? And and really what we need to be building is is more proper public transport, great public transport, you know. And I mean, I live in Cornwall and public transport doesn't work. But if you go to London and see proper public transport, you know, like the new, you know, the new, uh, the new um, Elizabeth line, line for yeah. example, you say, oh, God, this is like, it is amazing that you can get around so quickly. And like, you wouldn't drive around London and you wouldn't even get in a cab these days. You're like, what's the point? Like, I can do this this stuff quickly and easily. And it's, it's sort of inclusive. And I think we need to be, you know, we need to be bold on challenging, also creating unintended negative consequences by environmental steps forward that we that we actually don't need. Because I, I think we might might be building just the next ticking time bomb by mining mining uh, the minerals from you know the congo or from from deep seas or wherever to basically give people teslas and you go well look that wasn't the point that the, the point of congested roads was there's too many cars the point was not replace those cars with cars that run on something different you know yeah 
Um, and I'm, I, all of the ways people do things are changing too. You know, you see more car share things. You know, where, where are we sharing stuff that, you know, we, that, that, that previously we thought should just be individual? And there's, there are other good examples. I'm sorry I'm jumping around a lot, but, you know, I think music's interesting. I went into HMV weirdly the other day down, down near me in Truro and it's sort of weird. I remember, you know, going to the flagship store in Oxford Street when I was, a, you know, 13, 14, seeking out very sort of at the time what would have been quite rare punk records from from um california i loved a few sort of punk sort of surfy bands and i could only get them in two places there or in rough rough trade records in covent garden and uh, i'd find new ones and it'd be amazing and i'd get my red bus rover the pass was called and i'd go into town on the bus and find these records and then i went into hmv the other day and no cds anymore no cds None, you know, and I'm like, whoa. And then I've realized that it's all, it's all, dig- it's of course it's all digitized now. People don't have the, the thing anymore. They don't even want the thing. Thing is the, the music. And of course, there's a whole other impact of big servers running digital data. But it's just amazing to see that, you know, from where you, you were with like people would cover having the latest type of, you know, CD release. I've don't, I don't, got literally no desire. I mean, CDs are the most cumbersome, scratchable thing in the world. Why would I even want it? So it's just, it just is that the whole world is like shifting to this interesting place. But you're, I mean, everything you've just said resonates with me so much. And I think, you know, brief little speech on it is, you know, people think we're drifting towards this kind of George Orwell, Orwellian future. And I don't agree. I think that there are elements of that, but that's more Russia and China. It's more like Aldous Huxley wrote that we'd be controlled by our, happiness or our you know it wasn't well contentedness tv dinners and pizzas and unlimited streaming services you know he was a bit ahead of his time but you're right like something you said just towards the start of that last section there's that amazing study done that you might have seen around um floor space versus friends where yeah yeah you know it was i mean i won't do the long speech but it was seven so i think it was in the 50s they did a study of people who how many people can you rely on in a crisis and how much floor yeah. space do you have? And the answer was, I can rely on seven people and I have X floor space. 2010, I think yeah. they did it again. The average, if you round it to a whole number, was zero friends people can rely on in a crisis. And we've had a seven times uplift in floor space. So we've traded community for floor space. Yeah. And yeah. that, I think, as an activist, you know, maybe you agree, maybe you don't, but I think that's such a big part of everything at the moment is identity and purpose and how little of either most people have and actually just, you know, whether it's becoming an activist, whether it's slowing things down, whether it's, you know, deciding for your own reasons to not do X, Y, Z or do ABC. Yeah. There's so much purpose to be found in all of that stuff. Look, uh, look absolutely. And look, I'm really interested too as a, an activist, but also as a, you know, I'm, I've, I've led a team and I'm building a new team. You know, what I've seen over my career of, of the employment market and what people are coming into the employment space with their expectations of flexibility, location, what they will and won't tolerate, you know, what their you know values truly are, that they want to buy into something that, you know, and invest their time. And their time is, you know, it's their life. You know, it's their time on earth. You know, it's not a flippant throwaway remark of your time. It's your time. You know, that is your time. You could be doing something different with it. It's really important what you do with your time. And the young people, and I use that in a in the the, the, the most complimentary sense, young people are coming in to go, look, we, we want to use our time differently. 
and we want to do different. We're not interested in what it was. We're interested in how it is and where it can go. And that's really interesting as we adapt to it because, you know, I do think people want to come together for work, but they want to come together for the right things and they want to be trusted and they want to be working on a shared goal and endeavor that can can make them feel rewarded. And they don't, more and more, they don't want to work for British American Tobacco or for BP or for Shell or for, you know, um, you know, you know, brands that peddle junk to the world in the most sort of, you know, the broadest sense of the word junk. You know, they want to they want to do something that, that means a lot and means a lot to them. And I think that's right. You know, we get one innings, in my opinion, on this planet. Um, and 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 what you do, what you do here is actually how you live on, in my opinion. The positivity you, you you have on on in your life and the way you support people and share your ideas and share your energy and what you choose to do is is actually what your legacy and eternal sort of presence becomes. Yeah, it doesn't sound like you need to, but uh, maybe it'll be affirming that book. I mean, it's called the Good Ancestor, right? Change my yeah, view on so many things. Down. Thanks for that. Yeah, yeah no, it, it he's amazing that guy, but um. I'm conscious of time and, it, you know, we're recording this, it's 5pm, it's your 13th wedding anniversary, so I won't take up too much more of it. Um, no problems, yeah. But I think maybe it's worth us talking about your role now and why you've yeah. moved camps and what your intentions are. Yeah, it's like a really good, like I love, I love Surface Against Sewage and I, I like, I'm so proud, it'll be like, a, always be like a kid, kid to me, you know, and, you know, sometimes you've got to let your kid go and then go and do its next thing and 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 that and that is sort of where I got to and I sort of felt that you know as I, I took over in my 30s um, I, I took it from the brink of bankruptcy and obscurity to to this sort of this force and this this energy and I said to myself as I was approaching 50 I said like I it just doesn't feel like I can be doing this when I'm 50 you know um, and I saw the bigger, the, some of the bigger issues that I was fascinated in the sort of global, global um, places that SAS, you know, I sort of shoehorned myself into doing global things with, with SAS. Uh, I founded the Global Wave Conference with other organizations around the world. I, you know, traveled to lots of different countries to, to promote our campaigns and change we needed, um, you know, to the US a lot, worked with people in California and, and in New York. Um, um, did a lot in Europe, um, got to see some really interesting things. But I, I sensed the new challenge was there, and particularly around marine um, protected areas, around the the absolute protection from big industries like oil and gas, but also the restoration agenda. Um, I felt like a hankering to learn again and to build build a new team. Um, and so Oceana um, serendipitously sort of came along, and I had lots of conversations with them, and and chose to to go to to them. And and you know, it's been it's a really interesting journey. I'm sort of six months in building the team. I've got an office in in Newquay, overlooking the harbour, which is great. Working fishing harbour, which also has a an amazing left hander that comes off it on on its given day, which I can see from my desk. So if it's working. Um, maybe sneak a half an hour quite easily. Um, and then it, it keeps me connected. I'm a Londoner, so I need the, I can't just do Cornwall, so it keeps me connected. I'm going to build a bit of a London base too to work on three issues really initially. One is sustainable fisheries. 
um, and stopping the, the, you know, the, the overfishing of our seas, which is happening day in, day out. You know, as I started, I sort of, so part of you wants to go like, ban end fishing, you know, but it's, it's not, it's not black and white. And then of course, like I've friends with fishermen, I'm friends with people in the industry. It's, it's culturally, it's economically, it's nutritionally important. So you can't just end it. You've got to make it much, much better. You've got to eliminate the bad parts. You've got to promote the good parts and you've got to make it work. So that's, you know, interesting. And even, you know, people like Ali Tabrizi, who I know from Seaspiracy, you know, they change from sort of anti-fishing to actually we would need big marine protected areas. And so everyone comes to this place of of sort of, you know, what really needs to happen. It's not binary. Um, you need the you need the most binary people to help push you in the right direction. So we're going to work on that. We're working on marine protected areas. We did a big stunt last week around fishing in marine protected areas like um, in our offshore areas, 136,000 hours of industrial fishing and 7,000 hours of the worst type of fishing, dredging and trawling in our bottom trawling in our marine protected areas, you know, just not consistent with our 30 by 30 goals, with our conservation aims, with anything in those areas. So we're fighting that. We want to end all bottom trawling and, and, and dredging in our marine protected areas by 2024. And our legal challenge at Oceana to the government in 2021 has set out the, 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 the framework for us to achieve that. You know, and um, and thirdly, oil and gas. There's no marine front to it, and we're working with a, a brilliant person called Tessa Khan, who runs the Uplift Movement. Um, and we're the it's a climate movement, and we're, we're starting a new marine front to challenge North Sea in particular oil and gas, but all or new oil and gas in 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 the UK. We need a just transition for oil workers into the renewable energy. We need to stop new oil developments from actually stealing resources from the nascent or the, the growing and burgeoning offshore renewable industry, um, because you know the same boats are needed to build wind farms that could build oil platforms. So you've got to you've got to make sure that doesn't happen um, and you know we're starting a new marine front because there's a massive threat to it not just from catastrophic oil spills but from from just day-to-day oil spills in operations they leak oil they leak microplastics they leak chemicals you know this is not an industry we need near important whale and and fish um you know spawning grounds we um need need these marine protected areas truly protected and all of the local economies and local fishers and we only have to think back to 1993 the prayer oil spill in, in i think it was 93 in in shetland um you know, decimated a lot of the fishing industry for a long time really devalued the the, the previously premium brand of some of their shellfish you know it's it's um you know, it's a big bad industry that is on its last legs, and I'm sure whalers put a, up a good long last stand when they were put out of business. But oil and gas is heading the same way. Yeah, no, and it just shows. I think some of what you're saying, you know, I consider myself sort of moderately well read on some of these subjects, and you just, I'm happy to admit my naivety. You, you, you hear marine protected area. And you just think, oh well, that bit's sorted. That's good. Then let's build more of them. Yeah. And then you're saying, yeah. well, they're they're dredging the floor in the room. Well, yeah. Is that even legal? Like what? And it sounds like it is legal. What? I mean, we actually don't think it's legal. Our, our take is it's not legal. And so we are fighting the the government on it. And we talk to them. You know, we talk to ministers and we talk to Defra. We've got a legal challenge. We we brought brought. There's a consultation going on at the moment to to manage fishing in marine protected areas we want to ban bottom trawling and dredging that's what we think they legally have to do we've got these consultation periods that will take 
take us up to the end of next year, which we we will win on, we think, around that. Um, you know, we, we don't think you can call it a marine protected area if you've got dredging in it. I mean, it's, a, it's like taking up like a you know, a, a plow across a, a protected area for, for, you know, species on land. You know, you just wouldn't, you wouldn't do it. So well, don't do it at sea. I'm going to deliberately upset loads of people and I'll take the emails, but it's like calling Dartmoor a national park. Um, but don't, yeah. get, don't get me started. Um, <clears throat> I'm very conscious of your time and I could chat to you about this for hours and hours and would love to, but... Um, I always ask people two questions at the end of every podcast and I'm going yeah. to end this one here and maybe we can talk again another day. But the first question is, what scares you? Um, what scares me? Um, plenty in terms of wave size. Um, um so, so yeah, anything above about head and a half, I'm I'm probably a bit, bit nervous. Um, you know, but I mean, true, you know, sort of, sort of jokes aside, you know, of course the future is scary, you know, because we're going through a massive period of change. But I don't yet believe it's as binary. You know, it's all portrayed as like we we either solve it all or we're going to burn in a horrible fire and i don't believe that that is the the journey we're on i believe that we've got to turn that fear into action we've got to turn that fear into motivation and we've got to show that you know every win is a win and and this isn't this isn't a battle that's lost and that we've got to we've got to fight for as much as we can because we live despite all of the challenges in the nature depletion we live in a really beautiful world which with this unique set of circumstances that have made all of our lives possible and whilst there's blood in our veins whilst there's air in our lungs whilst there's you know um stuff around us to save then we should do everything we can to 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 make make good for people and for the planet and um and that's what i'm committed to doing amazing and i i, I sense you've just answered this but my last question is what brings you hope Ah, I see my 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 wife and my son. You know, I see I see the sparkle in in their eyes when they use the water. When I you know I surfing, I surf for five hours. Well, I surf for four hours. Darwin surf for five hours over the weekend in beautiful waves. And you know, he brings me hope. Um, and you know, the the in a more sort of in a more sort of um, in a broader sense, the the hope that change is possible. Look, let's just 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 rattle off a couple of examples. Like we. We had a massive issue when I was a boy with the ozone layer. Big laws came in. Ozone layer is repairing itself. It's getting fixed. We're on the right course. You know, whale populations were decimated, brought in the international moratorium on whaling, albeit flouted by a few countries here and there. But still, we saw the the boom in, in previously almost eradicated whale populations. You know, the reaction to the pandemic, despite the tragedy, and I've got friends and, and lots of people who are directly affected, but, you know, it showed that the world can act and unite. Um, you know, all sorts of examples from around the world where with, with really strong enforcement of really good policy and legislation, we can we can change things for the better. So I'm hopeful that the world can rally in the face of danger, rally in the face of crisis and and create a more 
you know, sustainable, just future for, for, for people. I'll take that. It's been amazing. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. For more information, head to the Adventure Podcast at co.uk. If you want to get in touch, then you can email me at matt at terraincognita.studio. And finally, as always, please do leave us an honest review on iTunes. They're immensely helpful and help us to reach a wider audience.